0: From Double Door Studios at Manassas National Battlefield Park, I'm Nikki Bland. And I'm Franny Robin. This is A Different Truth. In this episode, we'll look at the concept of white privilege. Using resources from Be the Bridge, as well as Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, we'll explain white privilege what it really is, who has it, and what we can do with it. A Different Truth can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please like and follow us on those platforms. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review. That helps us get more views and show up in more searches. You can also check us out at our website at differenttruthpodcast.com. We will share resources and information on our website and social media platforms, where you can also send questions, comments, and ideas for future podcasts. We really want this to be an interactive engagement with our listeners. So please let us hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for the next episode of A Different Truth podcast. We are doing our first socially distant podcast recording using all the amazing technology that we have at our fingertips. So we're excited about being able to continue this work in the midst of this crisis. And one of the things that has been on my mind As we see what's happening unfold around the world, and especially here in the United States, is the concept of privilege. I've seen not just racial privilege, but also class, economic, societal, you name it, Um, just how people are quickly realizing what they may have that others don't and why that is the case. And it's really just been something that's, Frannie and I have been talking about with others as well as each other. And so we thought we'd take today to talk about the concept of privilege. Obviously with the focus of our podcast being on racial reconciliation, we're gonna focus on white privilege in this conversation. And... Hopefully, we can all learn something together. I know I had a lot to learn when I first started thinking about these concepts, and they're really the concept of white privilege is really one of a few concepts that many white people haven't either had to put a much put much thought into, or their concepts um, and understanding of these concepts is is skewed a little bit based on what they may or may not have learned so far in their lives. So first of all, one of the things, um, just jumping right into it, that really opened my eyes is a document that is part of the Be The Bridge curriculum. Again, we've talked about that organization a lot so far on this podcast. I'm sure we will continue to do so. It was a huge catalyst for our learning and our growth And our commitment to sharing this information. And that document was, it was previously called Whiteness 101, which in and of itself is a attention getter. They have, they released a revised version of it last year, 2019. And it's now called Be the Bridge 101, Foundational Principles Every White Bridge Builder Needs to Understand. And it is obviously focused on educating white people who are doing this work and building bridges and focusing on racial reconciliation and social justice. But I think as any non-whites are listening, it is important to understand what some of this looks like from a white perspective. And so with that, I think we can, again, as is our goal, kind of all work together. So... Any thoughts, Franny, before we dive right into the
1: meat of this? Well, um, that thank you for that awesome introduction. And I just want to underscore, even in the face of um, facing huge challenges, thank God technology is allowing us to get the information to you, to engage in the conversation. And one of the reasons why we find it very important is the questions and Um, the inquiries that we're getting from people who are actually using this podcast platform to really educate themselves. And so even as we're facing other difficulties within, you know, um, the the nation and, you know, the world, we also want to take the time out just to share information with you to help you really understand the ramifications that this pandemic will also have on people who are now in positions where they are at a disadvantage economically to even think of how um, they'll be prioritized during this health crisis as well. So we all are at a disadvantage because we're all ha- are possibly exposed to it, but just other factors that will also be included. And we just want to take some time to bring that to your attention.
0: That's right. So even the concept of thinking about race and how it impacts individuals, how it impacts our communities and even the constructs of our society is a privilege or lack thereof. So it's interesting when you think about the privilege of not having to think about race as something that whites primarily enjoy. And you know, as we've discussed many times, Franny—not just you and I, but others—and and so many have recognized who do this work. Um, people of color have to think about race all the time, and it's not something that's really possible to be avoided. I mean, would you agree with that?
1: Oh, wholeheartedly. Um, and sometimes, you know, um, in in the spaces where we exist, it's just ingrained. Um, how you are conditioned to, like, approach the situation, how you um, make yourself uh, seem less threatening, even though no one possibly in the room will probably think that, but the indoctrination to present yourself in a less threatening manner because of the color of your skin or being perceived because of the um, color of your skin. um, It's all the time, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely.
0: Right, so you know, sort of building off of that when you think about white identity and what that means. um, it's, It's interesting the first time you ask a white person to explain their culture to you. And we had this sort of inadvertent experiment in one of our small groups last year where we talked about culture and went around the room. And for some of us, it was like, yeah, wait a second, what is our culture? When you just think of ourselves as... White people, it's hard. And I think what I recall of that conversation was that most of us immediately hearkened back to maybe that, that piece of our heritage that we most identify with. So for me, for who knows what reason, I, you know, choose to recognize and I say, oh, yeah, I'm Italian. Well, I'm probably 25% Italian at best, but, you know, I always thought Italians were cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm just going to go with that. Yeah, um, yeah. So then you're like, yeah, when I think about it, we had a lot of spaghetti growing up. I mean, it's kind of silly, but yeah. Um, it we just don't think of it that way because it's just whiteness is such a normal, you know, it's the normalizing, um, I can't think of the word, but... Uh, it's the normalizing aspect or normalized viewpoint of our society, Mm -hmm. right? So we don't think about whiteness. We think about everything that's not white. And that's much easier to recognize because that's a perspective that the majority of us are coming from. And I like how... um, Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, which is a fantastic book um, Mm -hmm. and on our list of recommended readings, um, sort of summarizes why it's important for people to understand their white identity. And she says, and I quote, the task for whites is to develop a positive white identity based in reality, not on assumed superiority. In order to do that, each person must become aware of his or her whiteness, accept it as personally and socially significant, and learn to feel good about it, not in the sense of a clan member's, quote, white pride, but in the context of a commitment to a just society. And I think that's just a really awesome perspective to have that, you know, being white isn't something you have to be ashamed of. And... It's not, you know, something to shun, but at the same time, we can recognize how that benefits us in this particular society, especially and what we can do with that privilege and how and what those privileges are um, and how we can use those to, you know, some of them are good, they're not necessarily bad. And, and so how can we use those good, uh, privileges and make sure that they're available for all.
1: yeah yeah um, and, and so one of the, the other things that I, I also want to point out, um, especially when you said you know just because you're white doesn't mean that it's something that you have to look at from a negative or uh, a not a, a, you know negatively. there's also responsibility on every people group to have an awareness of our existence, our spaces, the spaces in which we exist. And um, I'm just hoping that we could use this podcast to heightened, heighten everyone awareness of how um, we exist, especially when we're sharing spaces with each other. Well, when we get back to being able to sharing spaces with each other. But um, I also right. a- agree with, um, there are so many authors who are um, so very vocal now about sharing uh, and helping the greater community understand well, have a better understanding of the words where, that that are spoken. White privilege, white you know benefits of white privilege, as not as a standoffish thing, but at a, and, and not as a thing that needs to be defended, but as a an opportunity to engage the conversation. And you know, like you said, Nikki. Um, as we go deeper into it, like why is a position of offense taken as we explore uh, the words or the feelings that are immediately risen to the surface when the word white privilege is spoken or when the words white privilege are spoken?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll just start with my own misconceptions um, that I don't think are that uncommon when, you know, just I look back on how. I reacted when I heard that or what just came to mind when I would hear the phrase white privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not atypical for people to immediately associate privilege with wealth. And so this concept that privilege is sort of being born with a silver spoon in your mouth is, is not at all. Um, Are certainly not entirely what this is about. And there's so many aspects in which we are privileged as white people that don't have anything to do with money. It has to do, I mean, with everything from opportunity to personal safety can be a privilege that we don't, as white people, have to deal with. So, um, you know, just continuing along with some of the the information in this, in the Be the Bridge curriculum, really privilege is a part of our identity as well as the opposite of privilege, which is oppression. And we all have parts of our identity that are privileged and other parts that are oppressed. Um, And when you think about, you know, so, okay, what does that mean? Privileges and oppressions can either accommodate or alienate us from one another. And so um, when we talk about privilege, it's the way we're um, advantaged or disadvantaged by specific categories of our identity from others in that same category. So it, it's interesting when you start to broaden your understanding of of what that means.
1: And I, I like how you said th- you shared that. And, and the other thing that I want to add to that is to even have a, a greater understanding for th- the word privilege. We really have to go back and look at some other things. And I'm glad I don't have to come up with this information on my own, but I'm actually rereading Robin DiAngelo's book on white fragility. And she does a really fantastic job. Just um, just like also the, the Be the Bridge. And we, we could go in and kind of just read the definitions of some of these um a word so that we can we have a clear understanding when we do get into talking deeper about privilege. We're now using it from the context of understanding what race is, what prejudice it means, mm-hmm. what discrimination means, um, and not just what race means, but the factors surrounding the proliferation of why racism continues today and how some of us are so oblivious to the fact that some of the practices or the benefits that we ex, uh, experience are due to factors and systems that you know allow us to experience racism at the cost of other people, people of color usually um, to their detriment or their oppression, like you said. So um, one of the things I want to take some time to do is just go over the definition of each of the terms that we're using. So as we deep dive into the conversation, it'll be um, from the foundation that we've laid in the proper definition of the terms that we'll be using. So I'm just going to read the Beta Bridge definition uh, from its glossary uh, list of uh, words that we'll be referencing. And so... um, I'll start with people of color because we've already done that. And a lot of times um, since we, what in our previous podcast, we talked about how black people prefer to be um, referred to. Well, people of color is often abbreviated POC, and it's a collective term for non-white people or non-white people or or, or communities. Um, Prejudice. Uh, prejudice, according to the Beta Bridge Glossary, is a preconceived judgment or opinion about a person or group of people, usually based on limited information or stereotype generalizations. Race, which is the big one, and um, we just want to have conversations around the proper definition of race. So, race is the social classification of humans into categories based on a broad range of physical characteristics such as skin color, facial features, and hair texture. Race categorization is not based on science, but on arbitrary distinctions which have shifted over time. Widespread usage of the concept of race did not occur until the 17th century, when European colonizers sought a way to legitimize a social hierarchy that placed light-skinned people in power and allow for the subjugation of all others. And then I wanna just uh, go over racism. Racism is a system of advantage based, racism is a system of advantage based on race involving cultural messages, misuse of power and institutional bias in addition to racist beliefs and actions of individuals. And white people, which we've already started using throughout this podcast, is a term you used to describe lighter-skinned Caucasian people or communities or those of European descent. So those are the terms we'll be using predominantly throughout this podcast discussion, and we wanted to give you a true and better um, a well-written definition of the terms that we'll be using. And if you have any questions? about any other terms that you have been hearing in the community especially around the subject of racial reconciliation or in the work that we're doing please make a note or drop a note in the comment section and ask us how we would define it in the context of the work and the discussion that we're having here on a different truth podcast and in the the realm of racial recon the space of racial racial reconciliation work so we just want to ensure that you have a proper and a proper working definition of the terms that we use throughout the podcast
0: no that's really important thank you um so getting back to this concept of white privilege and what it is and why it's important that we learn to recognize it um especially in our society here in America. Um, One of the things that I found really interesting to think about is this concept that a lot of us hold that America is a meritocracy. So here we go with more definitions. (laughs) A meritocracy (laughs) exists where everyone who works hard has an equal chance of succeeding. And Mm -hmm. the fact is that, um, as they explain here, that privileged people have fashioned a society in America that advantages people like themselves while disadvantaging others. So, you know, when you go back to the definition that you just read, I think it was um, this concept of race not really existing until the 17th century as... You know, we see this huge increase in the transatlantic slave trade um, and, and some of the ideas and laws, which we talked about previously, that started to exist and were written. Think about who was writing the laws, who had the power, and it's interesting that it wasn't even just all white people, it was white men and as we were just talking about yesterday it wasn't even all white men it was white landowning men so you know this this idea that now you know we're all just in it together i mean everybody has who was putting the foundational principles of our society together has something to gain and that doesn't mean that every single one of them were um you know these evil people but that's that's what it looked like at the time and how Um, Our society was being built even, you know, from an economic perspective. So, you know, that's something that has fed into this belief that um, this is just how we are, that anybody can succeed, that anybody can um, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, as we've talked about, um, that many of us believe is actually true, but... It's not the case when the society was constructed in such a way that it's easier for some people than others. And as white people, um, it is, you know, when we think about the oppressed, you know, things that we're oppressed by or feel oppressed by, um, they stand out more when we're part of what's you know, called the dominant culture and that dominant culture theory is, is really when your identity lines up with privilege, you know, it doesn't feel normal. I'm I'm sorry. It doesn't feel special. It just feels normal. So it's, it's like this, we don't even think about it as a concept. So, you know, whiteness is a concept that most people don't even think about because it just is what it is. And then everything out. Everybody else is other. So, when you start to think about it as as an actual, ide- you know, part of your identity, if somebody were to ask me to describe myself, I wouldn't necessarily put my race at the top of the list. And I think there's actually been studies done on this where you know different people are asked, and it's primarily true that white people don't identify themselves as white. But most people, most non-whites, will identify their race because it's something other than the norm, which is white. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and it's the otherness that creates the problem. Um, And it's not, you know, not because of people outside of um, white people. Um, It's not that they're they're seeing their color or their culture as other. It's just that the way you know, um, society has been set up. And like you said, it's to see those individuals as others. So you'll find, for example, when people move here to the United States, um, the first generation, you'll find that, you know, they hold on to the identity as you were referencing earlier and they don't really buy into the concept of otherness. However, that eventually kind of will fade over time. And I could speak to that because when your children, the second generation are being born here in the United States, they take on the identity, of or uh, um, of unless it's really being practiced at home and being um, practiced to be carried on and for the culture to be carried on. This what was the first generation generation's identity now becomes otherness, now becomes other, now becomes secondary to the predominant culture. Even though there is also that constant struggle of, you know. Um, uh, being uh treated fairly or being treated equally or having equal access to that of white people um there's always that struggle um even though you know you tend to want there are people and i know i've I've been that way who want to also just see the the system or the 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 institutions just as an opportunity for me to take advantage of it because that's how we were, you know, trained and raised to just come to, especially to the United States and to take advantage of the resources. Little did we know that we were going to be battling against forces that's outside of just the opportunity. And those forces are another person's ability to decide whether you you get that opportunity. Um, and so there's this, as opposed to one of the things you were talking about were benefits, um even though that you know not all white people are wealthy the benefit that exists between a white person who's not wealthy and even a wealthy black person or a poor black person is the benefit of the color so like doors will open or um disparities in pay or disparities or limited opportunity for upward mobility within You know, your job or the company or your position or competing for if you're a small business owner who is a person of color competing for funding and the struggle of having to compete against not only, you know, other people of color, but a system that's designed to make a determination of your worthiness of, you know, becoming a success. Um, based on you know your idea or or the the passion that you're pursuing, all that's dependent on another person's ability to say that. So when you're talking about you know whiteness becoming something that you know wasn't always in existence, but became something um, that produced benefits for people who are white and oppression for people who are non-white. That system continues today, and I I pointed out earlier that um, when you have an institution like the government also um, holding up the idea of whiteness and the benefits that come with whiteness and making decisions as to who gets to participate in the benefit of whiteness. Um, That also are factors. Those are all factors that people of color also have to compete with, but it's not really talked about because it creates this conflict-ridden exchange where uh, it's perceived as, well, you know, you're not speaking well of the country. If you don't like it here, go back to where you came from, and those types of responses. But really what, you know, should happen is a conversation as to how can we work towards just having conversations just to address and identify, like, how – do we level the playing field how right, do right. we how do we create opportunities for people equally right but and
0: no i totally agree and i think the th- what's been interesting is you know for me and you know especially early on was you like i said it's very easy to see other you know, the oppression of others. But that's only part of the picture. And we can't, you know, one of the things they talk about, uh, not only here, but also in um, Peggy McIntosh's very well-known article about unpack, you know, called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, which is about white privilege as well, that and um, you can't leave this concept of whiteness out of out of the process, that if we're going to really try to dismantle, you know, the unjust system of advantage that exists in our society, um, we can't not think about whiteness. I mean, that's what it was built on. So to just focus on what it impacts without focusing on the system itself is not going to get us there. It's very similar when you think about the concept um, of of racism and how many people believe that racism is about individual hearts and if we could just change people's hearts and minds wouldn't we be a better society i would argue that we would be a better society but will we have eliminated racism not really because racism is really this concept of of prejudice plus power and I didn't coin that thought. I read it somewhere in one of the millions of things I've read, but um, that really has stuck with me that we could, you know, all decide to view each other equally and treat each other equally. But if we're still navigating um, in a society that's set up to advantage, you know, one group of people over others, then we're not all the way there. So you have to think about this concept of whiteness and where do we benefit and, you know, that's hard. It's hard to see something that's become really invisible, um, which is exactly what um, Peggy McIntosh gets into um, in her article. And, you know, I think just moving to some of those concepts, I think that's, if you've not read it, you've may have heard of it nonetheless, because it's really well known. It's often quoted. Um, She actually, I thought it was interesting, um, makes a pretty bold statement. And by the way, it's not new. Um, this is a good 30 years old and she makes the point of saying, Hey, this is just me. She actually, Peggy McIntosh actually did. Um, and I don't know a lot about her, but just from her own essay talks about, you know, how she's really focused on women's studies and in her work in looking at male privilege, um, started to realize as a white female, she does have some privileges as well. And, you know, had recognized just even from her own colleagues, you know, in discussions with them, how she was privileged over some of them who were not white. So this was really born out of that. And she makes the point of saying, you know, this is just, I'm not trying to speak for everybody. I'm just telling you what I have learned in reflecting on this issue and looking at it through this lens of privilege that she's been focused on, but in a gender um, specific way rather than a racial one. And, you know, she just there's not even reading through, you know, the 50 points that where she recognized a privilege that she held as a white person. Um Some of her other commentary, I think, is really worth um, noting. And, you know, on that last point, I think it's, well, I know she says this is just what she thinks. I think it really resonates with a lot of people, and that's why it's become such a well-known commentary on this issue. And she states that she'd realized that she'd been taught about racism as something that puts others at a disadvantage, but hadn't been taught to see one of its corollary aspects, which is white privilege that puts her at an advantage versus the disadvantage other people are put, um, are put to. So I just think that's reinforcing this concept that you can't only look at half the story. Um, And you really have to start to try to recognize, and it's very much worth going and pulling up. It's not a long essay, you know, it's maybe seven or eight pages, um, where she just kind of, she does go through half of it's just this, this list of things. I think it's worth noting a few of them. Um, but it really, just to note that many people view and understand this to be, um, a concept that holds true that you know we're taught as white people to think of as she says to think of our lives as morally neutral normative and average and also ideal so that even when you're doing this work of trying to help others who are at a disadvantage it's very easy to think well I know what it looks like to be at an advantage and to have privilege. So I'm going to try to bring them up to be more like me. And it's hard, I think, um, you know, we were talking about this the other day too, how especially um, that specific conversation we were having was about the church um, and concepts of who it's normal to learn from or to hear from or to allow to set the bar. Um, and it's it's not unusual for it to not even occur to white people that they might have something to learn from a person of color, that they're just seeing them as somebody they need to help and bring up and like, oh, let me just, aren't I benevolent to include you in my circle? Instead of thinking we can equally benefit from one another, not just that people of color, you know, standing outside our house, looking in the windows, wishing they could come in. That's not
1: necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, And speaking of benefits, one of the things that I guess I would like to highlight for those of you thinking, well, how is my race working to my advantage and what benefits am I reaping from being white or what benefits are there Um, that people of color are not privileged to also enjoy well some of those are um, for example seeing yourself represented in everyday culture seeing your children having examples of people who look like them in various spheres of um, of the world in various roles in various levels of professionalism, um, supporting and upholding and leading the economy. So those are some of the ways that we could actually start to look at it in in terms of the benefits that come. Uh, some people, uh, like you said, Nikki, unknowingly enjoy. Being able to count on the police to call to help you and know that when they come, you're going to get help and not become the victim of the help the people who are there to help and protect you. That's not always the case, but that is what the image, uh, that's the fear that people of color have um, have to live with or, or typically would have, or have experienced. Um, being able to, based on your economic ability, being able to choose where you live, um, being able to choose the neighborhood you live in, being able to apply for... Loans at the banks that's you're not where well, you're not coming up against biases that's already stacked against you, and we could talk about that in greater detail, but those are benefits mm-hmm. um being able to choose the skill your school that your kids go to because Certain neighborhoods that are designed to, you know, in the suburbs where you will see the disparities in the terms of population of people of color that are there are designed to have more money spent on those schools. So those students at those schools have greater access to opportunities or um, learning opportunities and or, uh, you know, extracurricular activities and um, opportunities to develop those students. Uh, so those are just some of the benefits to um um, that's not being, you know, overtly thought of in an everyday. And one of the other things that, you know, you probably don't have to worry about. People who are white don't necessarily have to always worry about. It. All depends. I'm not saying that for everyone, but one of the conversations that people of color have with their children at a very early age is how to respond to police, how to respond when you pull over, and the goal of how to re- being um being the goal of teaching your children how to respond to being over, um, pulled over by the police is so that they could come home alive. Right. So that they could come home safe. So it's not necessarily just to provide them with information on how to pull out your driver's license or how to pull out your insurance and registration. It's literally conversations around surviving being pulled over by a police officer. Um, based on where you live, sometimes it's easy to look at your community and say, well, that doesn't exist here. Well, that's also a benefit of not being a person of color because it doesn't matter what community you live in, people of color have those conversations with their children because they don't only, you know, travel back and forth within the community. They have to leave the safety of the community, whether it's gated or not. So those are some of the things. And uh, in terms of economics, I just want to go over something really quickly. If you're really wanting some information on how um, the benefits also are presented economically. Um, So one of the things that Nikki shared in uh, D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, she mentions that the term white first appeared in in colonial law back in the early 1600s. And by 1790, people were asked to claim their race on the census. And by 1825, the perceived degree of blood determined who could be classified as white or people of color, or whatever other um, nationality or tribe that you belong to. So um, one of the things that happened, um, in by 1922, the court, stacked with all white men, had the power to decide who was worthy or who they deemed worthy of being considered white. And when you were considered to be included in the category of white, benefits came with that. Economical benefits came with that. So Thomas Jefferson um, uh, made a request uh, to present a study, a science-driven study, and the goal for the request is to determine blacks or native peoples uh, to be proven scientifically to be inferior to white people. And if that were to be proven, what that meant that um, it would justify Jefferson's position that they needed to be held in bondage, enslaved, or colonized. Or they had to be segregated because they were inferior and couldn't hold positions of authority, of leadership. And as a result, they were always going to be held in a position where science is proving— that people of color aren't as smart or capable as whites. So what that led to, um, uh, historian, uh, well not led to, but historian Ibram Kendi shared that um, the beneficiaries of slavery, segregation, and mass incarceration have produced racist ideas of black people being best suited for deserving to be confined to slavery, you know, being confined to the jail cell or segregation. So as long as these ideas are planted in the hearts and minds of people um, about people of color, there will all and as long as it's perpetuated through the generations and perpetuated from decade to decade in media and the universities uh, within political candidates from political platforms from the leadership and even the Supreme Court, then there's going to be a watering down or a lack of awareness that the thoughts and opinions that are formed about people of color has been invested or even part of now the norm. Like you were saying, Nikki, the norm for the the way people think of people of color is that, oh, if they rise to some position outside of what Candy just shared, then they are... Uh, the example of exceptionalism right right They're the example of black people's capability of moving beyond poverty or whatever the other societal constructs that ails them and so um speak you know being able to 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 have information and being able to have an awareness that um what has has been taught from childhood to a white person and what has been experienced from childhood by a person of color will be what shapes the worldview of those individual unless, you know, a complete and thorough education of each culture yeah. is presented truthfully and honestly. And to, to now ask people who, who are, you know, white people to literally sit in the truth and the truth, the reality and the history of you know the native people of you know any people of color and to now see life of people other than um themselves or pe- people other than white and how how our our institution how our laws how our uh, the instruction um and how just our everyday life is shaped around the economics and the benefits that's designed to 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 benefit anyone Outside, you know, being a person of color, and so, so one of the things that we I'm really, really hoping that this podcast will do is just that, asking non people of color to look and sit and see through the lens past what you've been taught, yeah, beyond what's being put out on a regular basis. You know, why do you accept, or why is it, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say why do you accept, but why is it that the majority of people that you see as the example of intellect or the example of success or the example of you know education on on you know throughout history is isn't an okay and then when you have a Thurgood Marshall that makes it or Clarence Thomas that sits on the Supreme Court why is that okay or why is that enough to pacify your understanding of um a black person became that yeah. you know way able to fill that role well why if that's the case why isn't there Supreme Court's justice? Uh, more than one why isn't there why do we have to point to that one why do we have to point to the 44th 44th (laughs) president of the United States as making it you know so we have to think about those things and why why do we use those uh, you know like our friend we had on the podcast yesterday Cedric um, why do we use those tokenized individuals to explain the lack of a constant, yeah, a constancy of people of color being represented in those spaces.
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of, um, again of the fifty examples of white privilege that Peggy McIntosh provides. There's there's a few that I think are interesting to think about as she phrases them that speak to exactly mm-hmm. what you were just talking about. So, mm-hmm. um, and and especially when I think about that next generation right that's coming up and what is what are they seeing and hearing and being taught that's becoming the foundation of their understanding of what's achievable and and etc and you know just I just want to read a couple of these uh four actually that I think are key um again, from the perspective of a white person. So I can turn on the television or open the front page of a newspaper and see people of my race widely represented. Also, when I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people of my color made it what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then more broadly... I can do well in a challenging situation without being called a credit to my race. And, you know, which goes to the Supreme Court examples, to Barack Obama and like, wow, you know, one finally made it um, Mm -hmm. sort of concept. And then lastly, I'm never asked to speak for all people of my racial group. So, you know, that's just... Those are things that we as white people don't have to think about, but it's very important to recognize that fact in and of itself um, and and then you start to see that normal, what constitutes normal or the baseline was very carefully constructed.
1: And, you know, Nikki, I just want to add to that because I'm having this thought um, outside of maybe maybe this thought is as a result of, like you said, all the different books that I've read and I'm currently reading. But the norm, right? Why is it that some people are asked to um, normalize what it is to be American? Um, Why is it that when uh, people who speak a different language or people who look different from what the norm is, um, they're considered to be un-American or right. not American. Like I said, you know, one of the um, I'm Caribbean, so one of the processes that I had to go through was to be was to become a U.S. citizen was the naturalization process. And so, even in it, that, in and of itself, every country has their own standard for people becoming citizens. But why is it that once I became a citizen, I didn't have equal access to everything? That would allow me to move up to you know the Supreme Court equally equally as my white brothers and sisters without um, factors coming into play so such as in my everyday you know learning to eat foods that will allow me to look and you know more American in my in my appearance at at you know sight Mm -hmm. what is also being taught about me is like I am get outside of the norm because of the color of my skin, and no matter you know unless we get to get past the norms like you just defined that we accept as norm, then we start doing the the real work because once someone sees me and they don't see she's brown, she's an angry black woman. She, you know, she should have all the answers that I may need to answer what's what's ailing the African-American community or why can't they pull themselves up by their bootstraps or why do their women abort their kids and don't they understand the genocide? Once we are able to truthfully process all that information, then we'll be able to say, OK, we we more we'll be able to say, Let's work on the heart issue because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if we work on the heart issue, then we are committed to dismantling the institutions that create these categories for keeping people um, in confined or oppressed. And just because, you know, you have a Barack Obama or Colin Powell or Susan Rice or Clarence Thomas. That should be. We should get to a place where that shouldn't even be an example that we have to put forth.
0: Right. Yeah. No. I totally agree. And you know, I'm just sort of looking at the ending of Peggy McIntosh's um, essay on the on unpacking the invisible knapsack, and I really like how um, how she talks about what we need to do. What do we do with this information? Um, and so I'm not even going to try to be clever. I'm just going to quote. Um, and read a few sentences uh, that she uses here. And she says, to redesign social systems, we need first to acknowledge their colossal unseen dimensions. The silences and denials surrounding privilege are the key political tool here. They keep the thinking about equality or, or equity incomplete, protecting unearned advantage and conferring dominance by making these subjects taboo. Most talk by whites about equal opportunity seems to me now to be about equal opportunity to try to get into a position of dominance while denying that systems of dominance even exist. It seems to me that obliviousness about white advantage, like obliviousness about male advantage, is kept strongly enculturated in the United States so as to maintain the myth of meritocracy, the myth that democratic choice is equally available to all. Keeping most people unaware that freedom of confident action is there for just a small number of people props up those in power and serves to keep power in the hands of the same groups that have most of it already. And then she just concludes with, what are we going to do? And she says, you know, it's an open question whether we'll choose to use our unearned advantage and whether we will use any of our arbitrarily awarded power to try to reconstruct power systems on a broader base. So with that, I will leave you with the same question that Peggy McIntosh ends her essay with. Will we choose to use unearned advantage? And will we use any of our arbitrarily awarded power to try to reconstruct power systems on a broader base? food for thought indeed. So we want to actually leave a little postscript to this episode because if this is the first time you've wrestled with any of these concepts or ideas as a white person, it is completely common to have some specific reactions. I've I've had them myself. Some of those you may be thinking But I'm not a racist. Um, If you're trying to call me a racist, I'm done with this. We're just being divisive by bringing this up. Why are we so focused on race and, quote, playing the race card? You know, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Why does everything have to be about race? What about reverse racism? And, oh, so since I'm a white male, everything's my fault, right? And there's a name for those types of comments and that type of reaction. And it's referred to as white fragility. For any referenced, the book by Robin DiAngelo called White Fragility. And I think what's really important just at a general level to try to remind yourself and others as you're digging into this whole area of work. The co- the idea here is not to paint anyone as bad as evil. You know, we say I've said before that it's not necessarily fair when we try to justify racism and prejudice and slavery. That people were just a product of their society because you know there were always people at the same time acknowledging that this was wrong. You know, abolitionists were identified in the 1500s, but at the at the same time, I do feel a little bit compelled to say, in a big sense, we are a product of our society because we've been trained to recognize ourselves, whites, as normal as the beneficiaries of how our systems work. So it's not unusual to have sort of an allergic reaction to these ideas and, you know, I mean, I remember when I was a couple of years ago just digging into some of this and I would just sit there and cry because I just thought, oh, you know, I thought of myself as a bad person. I had to sort of get over that and realize I can unlearn things and I can recognize that these may have been beliefs that I held, but I don't have to continue to hold them if I'm really willing to learn and listen from others, as we say, who don't have the same lived experience that, uh, that I do. Um, so just to touch on a couple of things as we wrap this up, Robin D'Angelo defines white fragility as a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions, such as anger, fear, guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. So, you know, on that last note, sometimes you do need to leave a conversation, but don't leave it because you refuse to think about it. Leave it because this is heavy. I need time to process. You know, I'm going to go find some other information, maybe do some self-reflection, maybe do some educating and really check to see if what I'm feeling is fragility about learning something that makes me uncomfortable. Um you know, and I think that's something that we all have to wrestle with. And so she also touches on this concept of, of colorblindness, which we've talked about before, and that even recognizing race as an issue is racist. <laughs> and, you know, the when you think about, This idea that we don't see color as a good thing, you really, in many ways, saying, I don't see you, if you're saying that to a person of color, Um, because we're more comfortable with a literal whitewashing of all racial topics so that it's not a situation we have to put ourselves in. Um, And... It can be hard for people of, you know, for white people to hear about others' experiences and accept it because it's not something we necessarily necessarily relate to. And oftentimes our reaction may be, especially when we feel like even if we don't come out and say it that somebody's, quote, playing the race card, maybe it's the question that comes out of our mouth is, Are you sure? Is that really what happened? Well, how do you know what that person meant? And nine times out of 10 it doesn't matter what somebody meant it doesn't matter what their intention was what matters is how the receiver took that information or that reaction or that action to you know as how they took it upon themselves and whether or not if that's what they feel and that's what it caused in them um was that pain then that's what matters it's not it doesn't matter that i didn't Mean to hurt you. What matters is that I did. And I need to recognize that that's a valid hurt, even if it's something I can't understand. So, you know, I just think that this concept of white fragility, we're definitely going to have an episode dedicated just to that because it's hard. It's a hard one. And even saying the phrase garners a reaction in people that um, really just proves its existence a lot of times. And I can say that as somebody who has dealt with it myself and still does. I mean, there's still things that happen that I'm like, you know, what am I feeling right now? Where is, what is it rooted in? And that's not an easy thing to stop and dig into. So, so we'll leave it at that for now. And just, you know, again, can't recommend Robin D'Angelo's book enough, but there's also some essays out there. Um, there's some quick information you can get your hands on that doesn't have to be, you know, taking a week to read a book. So we'll share some of that as well. So with that, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. This is a really hard topic, but it's a central component of this work. And like I said, it's it's half the story, so you can't really we're not going to move forward successfully unless we consider the whole story and the and the, all of the pieces of the puzzle that got us to where we are today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Franny. I feel like our first socially distant podcast recording was a success. Uh, I agree. I'm getting that I'm getting the stink eye from Kenny, so maybe I should hold that for when he finishes editing this together. <laughs> but I have yes, I, yes. I I believe in him. So,
1: I believe in you too, Kenny. So join us next time for
0: uh, <laughs> for part two of our white privilege yes. discussion. We're going to talk about statistics and data. And as a mentor of mine once said, "Data doesn't lie." So we're going to look at some numbers in several areas where this topic is relevant today. Thank you for listening to A Different Truth. We hope this episode helped you in understanding white privilege and recognizing where it exists in our society. In part two, we'll present some data to demonstrate just that and provide you with an article which contains a host of source data for your further review. Talk to you soon. This podcast was recorded at Double Door Studios in Gainesville, Virginia, hosted by Franny Robin and Nikki Bland. Produced and engineered by Kenny Bland. Original music by Ryan Robin. Original artwork by Ellie Bland.